To be a woman and interested in an anthropologically detached way in another woman's murder isn't subversive anymore. It's as brave as eating battery farm chicken or setting fire to a crash test dummy. If a thing's very purpose is suffering, it isn't radical to enjoy inflicting violence upon it. But wait, the study of canonical violence isn't the same as the infliction of violence, but looking at an act isn't the same as studying it, and witnessing an act isn't the same as committing it. So I guess we're at an impasse, somewhere between depravity and righteousness. And where's that? The recent market demand for velodromes, I suppose. We can edit this later. Throw in some xylophones. Hello, and welcome to Words That Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This week's poem is outtake number three by Susanna Dickey, and it poses a simple but seemingly timeless question. Is nothing sacred? In this particular poem, that question has a very important context. Entertainment. I read this poem this past weekend in the Forward Poetry Collection for 2024 and love the way in which it mimics the language of one of the most subtle forms of predatory entertainment today, at least in my opinion, the true crime podcast. Dickie's poem is a clever look at the way in which something can pretend to be a form of support and study while also monetizing it in the most troubling of ways. The poem's message and indeed the message of the collection it comes from, Isdal, is that there might be no ethical way to enjoy the content that comes from the suffering of others. Isdal is Susanna Dickey's debut poetry collection. The title of the collection comes from the real-life case of the Isdal woman. To quote the BBC, in November 1970, the badly burnt body of a woman was found in a remote spot in Norway's Isdalen Valley. Someone had cut the labels off her clothes and scraped distinctive marks off her belongings, as if to stop her from being identified. And as police started investigating her death, they uncovered a trail of coded messages, disguises and fake identities, but never cracked the case. This, as you can imagine, is the stuff true crime podcasters and documentarians dream of. A cold case with no clear answers, full of mystery that only gets increasingly tangled when more is uncovered. Ironically, the BBC itself has a podcast on the case called Death in Ice Valley. It is on this case that Susanna Dickey creates a fictional podcast of her own, complete with two inappropriately chirpy, occasionally flirty, and usually tone-deaf co-hosts. One male and one female. The fictitious production makes up the first section of the collection called podcast. There are two other sections, and as the poet puts it herself, they are a lyric essay trying to figure out why true crime appeals to us and what failures of conscience and kindness are required to its production and success. Finally, there is a sequence of poems written about the young girl who found the Isdal woman's body, centered around the longevity and lasting impacts of trauma and gendered violence. All sections of Isdal examine the strange cognitive dissonance required to actually engage with entertainment around something as gruesome and harrowing as femicide. Outtake number three is an unused excerpt from the fictional podcast. 
where the speaker, presumably one of the co-hosts or both, seems to have a sudden moment of clarity and realize the macabre nature of what they're doing. That sort of unraveling live on air, as it were, is what for me makes the poem so engaging. Our co-hosts are all at once trying to justify and realizing that there may be no justification for what they are doing. Before we continue, I have a favor to ask. If you've been enjoying the podcast for a while, or even if this is your first time, please consider leaving me a review wherever you listen. It really does help to get the podcast out to more people. With that being said, on with the podcast. As you may have guessed from the number three in the poem's title, this is one of a sequence of outtakes in the first section of Isdal. Each outtake is like a moment of revelation, showing the more predatory, shallow, or realistic elements of the true crime genre. In outtake number one, there is an attempt at controlling the audience's reaction to violence by choosing the right sound effects, a bizarre practice in itself. In outtake number two, both co-hosts are worrying about whether their chosen gruesome murder will be popular enough. To make analysing outtake number three a little bit easier, I've split the poem into three distinct sections. The first of these sections seems to act as a mouthpiece for the poet's own thoughts on the astounding popularity that the true crime genre is enjoying. To be a woman and interested in an anthropologically detached way in another woman's murder isn't subversive anymore. It's as brave as eating battery farm chicken or setting fire to a crash test dummy. If a thing's very purpose is suffering, it isn't radical to enjoy inflicting violence upon it. From the very beginning, the poem adopts the impartial, almost cold tone common in documentaries and podcasts of this nature. Words like anthropologically are often employed in these podcasts to lend an air of pseudo-objectivity and credibility to the production. This is almost always coupled with a statement of a lack of bias, or that every attempt has been made to avoid bias. The point of the section is simple. There isn't anything rebellious or counterculture-esque about learning about violence against women in an entertaining format. To quote the poem, another woman's murder isn't subversive anymore. The poet goes on to draw comparisons to battery farming and crash test dummy immolation, two other acts of violence that are ubiquitous and widespread in our world today, unfortunately not unlike the murder of women. The poet is not belittling femicide or indeed violence against women, but rather pointing out the bizarre logic of some people who attempt to justify their listening to true crime. Those who attempt to rationalize away the macabre nature of such entertainment. Dickie's imagery here is strong and vibrant. It jars the reader and forces them to examine something that has become mundane in our everyday lives. In using the examples she's chosen, a crass test dummy and battery farming, she highlights the absurdity of using the word brave to describe engaging with murder content. The kind of justifications for true crime I've just described are becoming more and more widespread particularly in the wake of the self-awareness and criticism now being levelled against that style of content. Scholar Pamela Berger neatly encapsulates the backlash in this phrase. This debate about the value of true crime speaks to our ambivalence over consuming real-life tales of horror. That anybody benefits through monetary gain or personal titillation from domestic murder, sex crimes and grotesque violence 
seems distasteful. And so we want to consign true crime to the lowest rungs of culture. Her article delves into the history of the true crime genre. It's cited and linked below in the Substack transcript for this episode, and it is well worth a read. However, like many articles of its kind, it goes on to attempt a justification of the genre. Dickie, on the other hand, refuses to allow such justifications. Her speaker puts it to the audience that you can partake, even enjoy true crime, but you don't get to treat it as a virtue. If a thing's very purpose is suffering, it isn't radical to enjoy inflicting violence upon it. The poet puts it best in her own words. Here is a quote from her interview with Forward Prizes. Maybe, as a woman, there's a self-protective element to ravenously consuming the images and details of other women's deaths. If you choose to view it as entertainment and allow it to entertain you, then you are about as psychologically removed from the victim as it is possible to be. You become a voyeur, not a victim. And as long as you are not like the victim, the pervasive and frightening violence that exists around you can touch you. It's not a mode of thinking that is useful or generative, but it makes sense. These words from Dickie herself mimic the musings of her fictional co-hosts in the next section. But wait, the study of canonical violence isn't the same as the infliction of violence. But looking at an act isn't the same as studying it. And witnessing an act isn't the same as committing it. So I guess we're at an impasse, somewhere between depravity and righteousness. Here, we see our speaker or speakers attempt to engage in the psychological removal just described by Dickey. This section begins with, but wait, and it acts as a pause both for the reader and the hosts themselves, as they attempt to escape the frightening violence they consume, and thus the frightening reality of what they're doing by making content out of it. They once again try to use objective academic approaches, the kind that were highlighted in the first section, to somehow make it seem as though they are not complicit in the further exploitation of the victim. Phrases like the study of canonical violence are ones that we often hear used to try and give some merit to the true crime genre. However, in this section, as the speakers compare various things to other things and find that none of them really match, we realise that perhaps their conscience is catching up with them. The logic of their statements begin to contradict themselves and we get the distinct sense that their logic is growing increasingly pedantic, looking for any way to escape what they are doing. But looking at an act isn't the same as studying it, and witnessing an act isn't the same as committing it. Dickie's clever use of repetition of words like but, it, and isn't helps to create a kind of looping, labyrinthine frame of logic, which leaves the reader mildly confused because it just doesn't stack. We can almost feel the co-hosts sweating as they try and make sense of what they're doing. What we are not confused by, though, is the mild hint of insincerity creeping into the speaker's words. The multitude of comparisons, study and infliction, looking and studying, witnessing and committing, all serve almost as dead ends for the speaker. Their rationalization doesn't have anywhere to go. They must finally admit a defeat of some kind. I guess we're at 
an impasse. Except an impasse isn't surrender, and we realize that nothing's been admitted here, except the speaker hasn't found a resolution they find satisfactory yet, and we get the feeling that that doesn't really bother them. Susanna Dickey's web of rhetoric does a great job of aping the tone of many people's arguments in favor of the true crime genre, and their defenses against the allegations of exploitation. They argue that the content built around other people's murders is useful in an academic sense and that it raises awareness of violent crimes. There are further arguments that they are somehow educational, that there is a social value to studying cases like these. These rousing defenses often cite the social impact of early examples of true crime podcasts like Serial or Jinx, particularly how they shed light on the cases they were based on and push them forward with new evidence. However, many academics and journalists have been quick to point out how these shows are outliers and how entertainment networks have taken the wrong message from their success. Audiences were initially drawn to quality production and storytelling, not just murder. However, production companies have chosen instead to simply churn out more and more true crime content usually with details more horrific than the last in each new iteration. Other scholars again have noted that even if there is some kind of social benefit to these programs, that doesn't negate the harm and exploitation to the victims and their families. Jack Miles is one such academic, who states in his essay Imagining Mayhem, There may be a social utility in such writing, but recall that when psychiatrists write up their cases for professional literature, they change the names. If the authors of true crime wanted to spare the victims or collateral victims of violent crime further unwelcome notoriety, rather than building on just that notoriety to build the audience for their books, it would certainly be possible for them to change the names as well. Jack Miles wrote this in 1991, around the time of the American Psycho scandal, but his point still stands. The creators of true crime content do not take enough responsibility for the harm it might do. Dickie's self-consuming logic deftly exposes that fact. There really can be no justification for exploitative true crime, or even for the well-meaning examples. So, the last line of the section, somewhere between depravity and righteousness, is revealed to be just another hollow substitute for responsibility from the hosts. The impasse they speak of is an abdication of the impact their content will have. There's another clever nod to pseudo-credibility or a pseudo-dignified tone in the use of righteousness and depravity. These grand concepts are there to make it seem as though this podcast on the Isdal Woman is a moral pursuit that understands its own weight. The final section of the poem assures us that the exact opposite is true. And where is that? The recent market demand for velodromes, I suppose. We can edit this later, throw in some xylophones. The phrase, and where is that, shatters the lofty musings of the last section. In doing so, it shows that our speakers, and thus our hosts, are both unaware and uncaring of the absurd tone and nature of their discussion. The final two lines are incredibly well observed and paradoxically chilling and comedic in equal measure. And paradoxically chilling and comedic 
in equal measure. The recent market demand phrase lets us know that both co-hosts are marketing savvy and very much aware of the success and monetary gain their exploitation stands to bring them. The velodromes reference, I have to admit, has completely thrown me. For me, I think it might be a reference to all the Peloton subscriptions, fitness food programs and supplements that you constantly hear advertised at the end of popular puck. It is a stand-in image for the fitness fanatic culture that uses podcasting platforms as a marketing tool. But I could be completely wrong on that. I'd love to hear your interpretation if you want to share it. If we take my admittedly shaky interpretation to be accurate, then the goal of these two isn't to raise awareness for the victim or to help solve the mystery, but rather to provide a cold, hard slot for sponsorship. The next line begins with, I suppose, a nice reminder from Dickie that we are listening to an outtake and not a finished, polished product. The final two sentences reveal our speaker's ultimate cynicism. All their doubt and moralizing will vanish with the click of a mouse as they edit later. Finally, they'll finish it all off with a xylophone outro. These last lines prove how cold our hosts are and how calculated their intentions are too. However, they also showcase Susanna Dickey's keen insight into the formulaic structure of true crime. To quote the website Screen Rant, the general formula for true crime podcasts is usually to reiterate a story with faint background music and with multiple pauses for added tension. This tried and tested structure seems very familiar to Dickey as the faint background music often takes the form of a chilling piano or eerie xylophone jingle. Ultimately, it shows that our speakers have no intention of producing ethical content. They will say anything and edit it with some clever tricks later to make it seem like they've said something of worth. Throughout outtake number three, Susanna Dickey establishes multiple layers of meaning with a surprising economy of poetry. It is a relatively short poem, but within it, we as readers are exposed to some very important questions around the exploitation of trauma. On the one hand, the language of the poem is two co-hosts trying to adhere to a worn-out structure, utilising the languages that audiences have come to expect to achieve success. On the other hand, for us as readers, that same language is being used by the poet to make us question the inherent predation of a form of entertainment that is ubiquitous in our culture. These layers of meaning from the same language manage to reveal our co-host's vapidness while also having a poignant message for readers. It is a testament to Dickie's skill as a poet. I will admit to a bias of my own in this episode. I happen to think that true crime as a genre is inherently exploitative, and I have probably allowed that to dictate my reading a little too much. With that being said, Susanna Dickey does a far better job of exposing it than I ever could. This poem is one of many that make up Isdal. The collection is a treasure trove of metafiction, intertextual poetry, and incisive commentary about popular culture. Dickey writes her poems with a great intricacy. There are many layers at work in each one. They work in a way that ensures the reader will remain engaged and thinking long after her verses have finished. Outtake number three is a wonderful example of all this in a convenient package, but I would strongly recommend that you continue and read the whole collection. It's a masterclass in writing poetry on a single subject 
from a multitude of angles. But now I want to know, what did you think of the poem? As always, this is my interpretation and I'd love to hear yours. If you'd like to get in touch with me, there are a few ways for you to do so. You can reach me directly by email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. You can get in touch with me through the podcast website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com. I'm on Twitter, or X, at Words That Burn, and now on threads at Words That Burn Podcast. I'm on Instagram, where you can find lots of additional content bonus material at Words That Burn Podcast. And I'm on TikTok at Words That Burn 2. If you'd like to read the script for this week's podcast, complete with citations and sources, check the Substack link in the description. I have also included all the information for Susanna Dickey's social media down below as well. If you enjoyed the episode or know someone who might, consider sending it to them directly or leaving me a review wherever you listen. Words That Burn is written and produced by me, Benjamin Colby. Thank you once again for taking the time to listen.